from the campus of Michigan State University in East Lansing. This is episode 15 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Legge. And this is Peter Lim, and our guest today, uh, whom I'm delighted to welcome, is Dr. Rita Kiki Adozi, Assistant Professor at James Madison College at Michigan State University. Dr. Adozi has a PhD in political science from that wonderful New School University, and her research interests include African affairs, comparative democratization, and developing world economic development. She's the author of People, Power and Democracy, the Popular Movement Against Military Despotism in Nigeria, 1989-99, published by Africa World Press in 2002. She was also the Deputy Director of the Institute of African Studies at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Welcome, Kiki. Thank you. Thank you both. And uh, it's, uh, I think it's very appropriate, uh, given the current global financial crisis, that we have a specialist in the connection between <laughs> African politics and capitalism. Uh, and just to add a bit of um, theatre, I've actually brought along today some Kenyan election paraphernalia that <laughs> kindly came to us from the Library of Congress office in Nairobi. And I'm actually wearing a, an Odinga cap and surrounded by uh, election paraphernalia. Well, perhaps we could start, Kiki, if you could tell us a little of your background and how you came to address these interesting research connections on the relationship between democracy and, and capitalism, and in particular in, in, in countries such as Nigeria, Kenya, and South Africa. Well, I won't take you uh, too far back, uh, Peter and and Peter, <laughs> Peter and Peter. Um, but um, I, as you know, I'm a Nigerian um, citizen, Nigerian immigrant. Uh, came to the U.S. Um, oof, you know, maybe about 18 years ago to go to graduate school. Um, ended up at the New School University, where I studied uh, political science, um, with a specialization in African politics. wasn't very defined at the New School at that time. So what I did study was um, definitely uh, the global economy, uh, stratification politics, uh, social politics, um, and I applied it to um, you know, African case studies. And so back then, I was really interested in the Nigerian pro-democracy movement and uh, you know, the ways in which um, the uh, globalization at the time, the introduction to neoliberalism was influencing um, that movement. Um, did my dissertation on that, wrote my first book, as you can see, on that, but you know, subsequently came um, much more interested in uh, applying these questions of uh, democratization and political economy and globalism uh, across the board in Africa. And so I ended up looking at um, a comparative uh, case study uh, in my new book, which comes out uh, in November. It's called Reconstructing the Third Wave of Democracy, uh, looking at comparative African democratic politics. And in that book, I try to look at the relationship between uh, democratization, the global economy, um, and um, uh, uh, you know comparative case studies. And so you know, one of the chapters was more specifically on um, economic development, uh, you know, corruption studies, and the ways in which uh, this was influencing uh, democracy in three country case studies, Nigeria, Kenya, and uh, South Africa. And I see that um, it has 
definitely engaged a lot of interest um, you know, in Southern Africa and uh, West Africa and certainly in the United States. Well, we certainly look forward to that book as well. And mm. interestingly to me, you relate political crises in Africa to financial crises and corruption in the North. For example, uh, you write that corruption crises in Nigeria, South Africa and, uh, and Kenya all have roots in international finance capital. And we've certainly seen lots of financial crises lately. Uh, I wonder if you could elaborate a little on this theme and uh, of, uh, of the relationship of financial crises and corruption and yeah. politics and, and perhaps its relation to broader globalization trends as they affect African peoples today. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I've um, just come from class um, and one of the classes I'm teaching this semester is um, African Affairs. I, I call the course um, Africa in International Relations and our subtopic um, these past two weeks has been actually development and I'm trying to uh, impress upon my students um, the uh, economic development crisis in uh, Africa of the 90s, especially the 90s. Uh, Africa has come a long way since then, uh, 20 years later, but you know, I'm trying to give them a picture of this historical epoch of the crisis at that time and using you know the same kind of language that we are seeing now I mean, this is the only way my students could understand it, uh, this notion of Wall Street versus Main Street in, mm. in our financial crisis, the impending uh, or contending, um, I guess, um, clashes between market-based capitalist-led uh, production versus um, kind of social welfare uh, status interventionist you know, policies, um, which is clearly, you know, happening right now, um, not just in the United States, but clearly has reverberations uh, around the world. But it can also be looked at from a global economy point of view, whereby, you know, what happens in the north, in, in the core north, where the onus of capital is clearly concentrated, um, has trickle effects uh, on the south, but implications that are huge in terms of um, um, reversing development gains and definitely uh, producing new kinds of political alliances in the South that clearly um, manifest in the kinds of corruption scandals and therefore democratic scandals that I tried to um, address in that article. What, what are some of the best-known uh, cases of corruption that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, just take the three that I, um, I, I chose. I mean, there's corruption all over Africa, but the, the, the three that I chose are Nigeria, Kenya, and um, South Africa. Um, Kenya's case clearly um, much more, you know, stronger, and certainly Nigeria's case. But, you know, I, I wasn't just looking at the corruption cases. I mean, so in Nigeria, we had the Globacom scandal. Uh, in Kenya, we had the Anglo-leasing finance scandal. And in uh, South Africa, we had the, um, uh, I forget the... Uh, the, arm, the arms deal. Uh, the arms deal uh, scandal. Um, mm. uh, but what I was looking at is how these scandals, these corruption scandals, on the one hand, influenced um, what I called um, succession crisis in the new democracies there. Okay, on the other hand, I also said, you know, we also need to look at corruption in a different way 
in Africa. Um, it's the same kind of theme I have in my new book in terms of democracy. We need to look at African politics, and I call it new politics. We need to look at African politics from a new point of view. We need to be more expansive. I have um, tried to move away from these old mainstream kind of um, you know, there's no democracy in these places, it's failed democracy, failed everything, uh, they're corrupt leaders. I think this is uh, very simplistic. And so with the corruption scandals in these countries, I said yes, you know, clearly when you have uh, states that are, um, um, have, have been deregulated, <laughs> deregulated in the sense, you know, that neoliberalism has um, said and forced these states to um, become minimal states and, you know, um, rely on private capital in order to nurture their economies, right? Um, but in Africa, I mean, Africans have always known that's a problem. You know, Africans in the 1960s who have um, you know, recently become independent, um, always knew that that was a problem. They, they wanted to develop, um, but how were they going to raise the capital to develop? And so the question was that these countries didn't have the kind of capital that they needed, and so they had to attract foreign capital, okay? But in the past, from the 1960s through to the 1980s, under the development regimes of the whole world, the whole world um, agreed, including the West, that um, developing countries, especially those in Africa, had the right to develop, and so they should use the state as engines of development. But the perversion of that, of course, is that it nurtures uh, you know, a kind of political class that is also an economic class. And when you fuse the economy and politics, what you get clearly is a, a patrimonial class, a, a patronage class, mm -hmm. a class that is accumulating wealth um, not for development needs, but for its own class interest. Um, so how has that changed, or how did that change with the advent of neoliberalism? There were changes, although you know not the kinds of changes that have necessarily been um, development friendly for Africa's you know tons and tons of you know people who have voted in democracies and want to see democracy as a dividend for um, the uh, accumulation of their own welfare and quality of life. Uh, it hasn't been for them. Uh, but what the politicians tend to say is that, well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to exist in this global economy, this global economy where we have to attract foreign direct investment, we have to make deals with uh, you know, global capital resources, and um, uh, we have to attract these. So one, we have to um, um, deregulate our economies, we have to structure economies around that kind of attraction. But the other thing they say is that um, we also want to kind of balance um, a, a kind of predatory um, you know, foreign in uh, investment that will come to this country and just kind of buy out, you know, all the ownership of the economy and then we won't have any ownership. So this small class of politicians and elites in Africa, what they do say is that we want to indigenize the economy. And so we want to be a class who uh, accumulates, you know, uh, wealth, you know, and keeps that wealth in the country. It's still a market-based model Okay, and it's a model that uh, certainly the global capitalist structure supports. Okay, mm -hmm. however, it is not a model that necessarily um, is um, 
helpful or valuable to the quick distribution of uh, resources and welfare being for the vast majority of African peoples. So that really is my point in that article. Yes. In your work, you point out how the IMF and the World Bank clearly played a, a key role in imposing neoliberal economic policies on African countries that basically restructured the local economies according to the needs of global capital. Now, in light of the current economic crisis in the United States and the West, and particularly the Wall Street bailout, uh, how are African elites uh, viewing these free market policies, uh, both in terms of what happened over the last 30 years and the pain that they have inflicted upon ordinary folks uh, and perhaps themselves, but also in terms of where they're going to go in the future, given what you just uh, pointed out? Yeah. I mean, the IMF just today um, announced um, quite, um, I think, moderately, that the world would enter um, a mild recession. Uh, most experts are suggesting that the IMF, uh, um, you know, are really just trying to cover up, you know, the real, you know, big problem and that the, the world is going to go into a big recession pretty soon. So, you know, we there are tough times ahead. Now, I can tell you some responses to Nigeria, which I have been following. Uh, pretty quickly. I mean, just two weeks ago when the financial crisis hit the world from the United States, several banks, for example, Russia, uh, closed its uh, central bank and um, also, I think, uh, um, well, so, so did Nigeria. Nigeria's stock exchange closed down. Um, in response, you know, to, you know, trying to adjust, you know, its markets to uh, an impending crisis. And so I could tell you that Nigeria is really going through a tough time right now. I was there just um, two months ago, three months ago, and Nigeria was talking about emerging economy, uh, talking about great growth rates of 5%. Uh, its capital markets were um, pretty strong, um, and not really seeing, you know, what came two months later. And so just two months later, Later, um, I understand now that the, the you know there's crisis. They've shut the down, you know, the capital markets. What will this do for the larger economy? Uh, clearly, it's not going to be good. Although, you know, one could say that uh, oil-producing countries like Nigeria might have some kind of cushion. Um, so they're betting on that. But you know, what about um, most of African countries that are not oil-producing? Uh, Africa's smaller countries. Uh, one of the things I was trying to impress upon my students again uh, in my uh, African Affairs course is um, you know these smaller landlocked countries that are also you know economies of you know a few million dollars okay uh, economies that rely on um, not just raw material production which will now clearly you know dry up but you know on aid and um, on uh, foreign direct investment. Uh, aid in itself, for example, I remember watching the debates uh, between Biden and, and Palin last Friday, and a question was asked um, by uh, Gwen Ifill, uh, what will either of you cut that you have promised <laughs> to Americans? And um, Biden said, well, uh, you know, the first thing we will cut is aid. We promised, you know, uh, so many billions in aid, we're going to halve that. 
okay much of that aid is development aid that goes to many of these smaller African countries that are reliant on that uh, countries like Liberia are already um, you know really uh, you know um, shaking from this crisis and they have a lot of development projects in mind good development projects but they can only be funded by international capital and so uh, these countries are going to suffer and so you know Africa again being a marginalized region um, economically of the world um, is is um, only going to be more marginalized from this crisis. Um, it's pretty sad. Within that uh, grim scenario, <laughs> I'm thinking of Naomi Klein's analysis in The Shock Doctrine, The mm -hmm. Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Good book, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> a pillar of that book is, is the idea that actually in these catastrophic circumstances, which this economic crisis is starting to look like more and more, uh, that entire economies, entire uh, uh, countries are rewritten, essentially, right? A blank slate is, is, is created upon which uh, new privatization schemes uh, and new authoritarian politics emerge. And Iraq, of course, is, is a poster child of that. Do you see a danger of something along these lines uh, taking place in perhaps Nigeria, uh, which of course just recently emerged from a long period of dictatorship, or South Africa, uh, where of course it was a white minority regime for, for so long, uh, or perhaps even Kenya, where the one-party yeah. state uh, just recently uh, ended. Um, do you see any, any yeah. likelihood of that taking place or something resembling that? Yeah. Well, that's my, my thesis actually in this article, uh, this political Politican article, um, and I think that title of that article is, um, we should just uh, mention it, is... Uh, um, <laughs> New trends in democracy and <laughs> development. You. Democratic trends, capitalism in go. South Africa, Nigeria, and Kenya. Thank you very much. <laughs> I wrote the article, <laughs> but um, you know this is um, this is the the theme. The theme is how does um, economic instability, or you know, the, the nature of a market economy, especially a laissez-faire market economy. I mean, we're talking about you know, the model of laissez-faire market economies right now in the United States for the first time. Well, not for the first time, but you know, for the first, first time, time in a long, in a time, long time. time. In a long time. Where is it the right model? This laissez-faire deregulation, you know, how does it affect politics was my theme. How does it affect democracy? New democracies was my theme um, and objective there. And here already you have these tenuous democracies in Africa. Clearly, they are called third wave democracies. They are democracies that emerge, um, you know, in the, in the post-Cold uh, War period. You know, these are countries that have re-democratized, definitely, you know, being shaped by the sign of the times. However, they're tenuous democracies. And what happens when um, the market is, you know, um, is, is taken away from under them, okay, definitely what's going to happen is that there's going to be political realignments that are not, you know, in the favor of the people, that are going to be in the favor of the elites. You will find that um, uh, democracies become or tend to become more authoritarian, you know, especially um, in Africa. I mean, this woman, Rita Abrahamson, has written a very good book called Democracy and Development, and she calls Africa's democracies exclusionary democracies. She says, yes, the democratic transition had occurred in Africa in the 90s and in the millennium. However, 
these democracies um, are, are, are merely electoral democracies they, in, in the sense that they cannot meet the needs of their people. Why can't they meet the needs of the people? Because in many ways they are um, meeting the needs of the international finance capital. They have been told they have to implement and restructure their economies, which they have done. Um, they are paying back their debt, okay, uh, they're experiencing growth okay, in terms of economic resources, but they are not in any way providing, you know, the greater public good. You know, the things that we as Americans, you know, expect, we want, you know, free healthcare or, you know, access to health, you know, quality health. We want, you know, good education. We want, you know, um, you know, the kinds of resources that we can, you know, participate in the economy. We want jobs. You know, Africans want these things as well. Africans want these things as well. They expect their democracies to deliver these things. Africa democracies cannot deliver these things and so what happens is that in a framework of democracy you have given the people the now the vote and also the ability to politically organize okay and so when they're not getting this kind of response from their leadership their new democratic leadership they organize politically and they organize politically in terms of strikes and demonstrations which occur all over Africa um, but what does this um, inept and incapable democratic leadership do because they have no other choice they just suppress they suppress and the beginning of suppression becomes the beginning of authoritarianism denying human rights denying voting and you know they come up with uh, also new old theories about well perhaps we're not ready for democracy uh, what we need now is you know security and um, economic development by forcible means you know and, and and that is where democracy just ends and so that could happen that could happen uh, depending upon how it's happening we had a Fiji a coup in Fiji oh, well, it was two years ago but there was a statement about it um, Today there was a coup in Mauritania uh, earlier this year, um, so it, it, you know it's happening. I mean, Ethiopia, you know, God knows, you know, what's going on over there now with, the, you know, um, trends in democracy because of you know issues of security and issues of you know uh, no economy, and so it could happen. It, it's a fear, and we really should be conscious of it. Maybe we could focus on some specific uh, examples, and we're now getting uh, South African uh, Broadcasting Corporation TV here in East Lansing and oh, I've been wow. following the Mauritania mm -hmm. situation mm -hmm. as reported th through SABC which is very interesting. Maybe we could focus for a, a, a little while on Nigeria and, uh, and ask about the likely trends in the Nigerian political party system. Um, in, in, in that recent uh, article you wrote in the South African political science uh, journal, Politicon, you write about the danger of domination of elite parties such as uh, the People's Democratic Party, the PDC in Nigeria, which you just outlined very well some of those, those trends. And, and, and you also ask whether pluralist, pluralist democracy can put down deep roots without fostering identity uh, politics. Uh, and in another chapter in a recent book uh, called The Politics of Ethnicity and National Identity, uh, you discuss centralization in the PDC and the prospects uh, for pluralism. Now, from what I um, understand of the uh, political structure in Nigeria, the, the so-called multi-party system there was rather prefabricated or constricted, having been forced into two major parties. And there's lots of arguments about lack of representation, such as the lack of uh, adequate uh, uh, returns from from the oil industry in the Niger Delta. 
Um, and here oil may be another good example in this nexus between international finance, capital, corruption and politics. So I guess perhaps you could, what I'm asking is will a, a more genuine multi-party democracy emerge do you think in Nigeria? Uh, I know it's always difficult to make predictions but um, and, and how, do you, how do you see the Nigerian political system developing? Uh, you've already outlined the current crisis. Do you, you think there is a continuing danger of this uh, of this uh, elite clientelism that you mentioned? Yeah, uh, I'll speak to the Nigerian um, situation, um, but I, I do want to frame it in, once again, this article um, in Politican, um, because what I was referring to and what I have referred to as a major theme also in my new book on new politics is the notion of uh, dominant partyism. Mm. Why do we have dominant partyism even in democracies you know, across Africa? It, is a problem in Nigeria, and I will talk about that. Um, it is clearly a problem in South Africa, mm. um, and now we are seeing, I think I heard an announcement uh, two days ago that um, there will be a faction of the ANC that will break away. Did you both hear that? Possibly. Uh, yeah. That will possibly break away from the ANC. Um, so obviously, you know, the ANC as a dominant party, okay, um, is, you know, under a little bit of crisis, uh, you know, given uh, the Mbeki Zuma, you know, factionalism right there. Um, and then clearly Kenya, Kenya's NARC, which came out of, you know, um, ironically, um, out of the rejection of dominant partyism of Kanu, okay, but NARC came in as a coalition of parties, but ended up becoming a dominant party, okay, that, and, and that, you know, very much caused, you know, a lot of the violence there over elections um, last year. And, and so, you know, back to Nigeria now, where you have the dominant party called the PDP, uh, the People's Democratic Party. Now, in the first place, I'll say that demo dominant parties tend to emerge in uh, African states. Uh, you know, it's not a cultural thing because you find it also in Asia and um, other transitional countries. Definitely in Russia, you're having a dominant party. Uh, in India, the INC was a dominant party for a very long time. And so it's a developmental thing, okay? Many developing countries, you know, have dominant parties. So you have this um, multi-party structure, but in countries like in Africa, where you have very ethnically and religiously plural countries, you want to try to mitigate against having ethnic parties or religious parties that would tend to divide more than, you know, broach cross-fertilization and um, cross-cutting kind of, you know, consensus for a nation. And so what comes up is these parties that try to be tents, tent parties. Uh, Richard Sklar described this in one of his books as the PDP or uh, party history in Nigeria has always been tended to be a tent party. A tent party says, I'm going to capture all the ethnicities, okay, um, and have a kind of coalition party that captures all the ethnicities, okay. However, you know, the problem is that 
you know, the effective party machine that is able to do that, and in this era of Nigeria's democracy, that is the People's Democratic Party. In the past, it was the Nigerian People's Party, uh, MPN. Um, today, it is the People's Democratic Party. It becomes a dominant party. Mm. Why does it become a dominant party? Because it goes into these ethnic regions and tries to mitigate against you know, local, federal, ethnic representation and say, we will represent you as a Nigerian party. Okay, so it tends to win elections because of its entrenched dominance, but it tends to, um, you know, kind of um, oust out of, the, or crowds out, you know, other parties. And Nigeria doesn't even have a two-party system right now. About 20 parties um, um, ran for the last election, 20 parties, and maybe you might have about three or four main parties, maybe three main parties. But even the two uh, um, opposition parties that are closest to the uh, dominant party, the PDP, had very few votes, okay? They have very difficulty, uh, a lot of difficulty in doing what the PDP does, which is to, you know, capture uh, regions beyond the region that they were formed in, right? You know, so the PDP tends to dominate, okay? It becomes a machine, clearly, and that's where you get patronage politics. It becomes a machine that um, uses elections uh, to buy up votes, you know, and, you know, kind of predatory, you know, around the country to entrench its rule. Um, and so it does become, you know, a, a kind of perverted um, authoritarian party as opposed to, you know, multi-party, pluralist party. And so this is what I was trying to explain in the case of Nigeria. Absolutely, the PDP is a problem. However, on the other side, my research has shown, and I just came back from um, studies in the Niger Delta and studies around the state. Nigeria is a very complicated state. It's a federal state uh, modeled around the United States federal system and the American presidential system for good reasons. Um, you know, went around the state and I found that, you know, the 36 states that Nigeria has, I found that several of the states um, have been able to um, fight against the PDP's dominance in their region. And so in those states, for example, Lagos State, um, Zamfara State, um, Enugu State, uh, in those states, these states have been able to, um, you know, float their own parties and their parties have been able to win in these states and have not been encroached by the party dominance. And so I think that the pluralism comes from these case studies and this is something about my future research you know how were they able to um, um, go, go against the dominant party you know how were they able to mobilize their citizens um, without being kind of swept into this dominance how were they able to you know build party systems that were based on you know their local regions and represented their interests and so there's a lot of that kind of dynamism going a, a, around you know, and across, you know, um, Nigeria, including the Niger Delta. Niger Delta is a very complex issue, but including the Niger Delta, where it's uh, also divided into, you know, several
individual, um, you know, small states, and you know, each state, you know, has its own dynamic in terms of representation at the local level, the uh, state level, and then the national level. And so, you know, this is where Nigerians' pluralism really is, and where it will be found, and where it will be nurtured. Okay, but it's not going to happen overnight. Perhaps uh, in the future. A comparison can be made with the Western Cape in South Africa where the Democratic Alliance contests uh, quite effectively the power of the African National Congress Good. at the provincial level and at the local level, say the Cape Town municipality. And do they uh, win? Um, they, they did Depending. win in 06, the okay. DA, uh, at the local municipal mm -hmm. level, but uh, the ANC retained the provincial sure. uh, power. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a, but it's a highly contested sure. political space as opposed to the overwhelming sure. majority that the ANC exercises sure. elsewhere, but also KwaZulu Natal where the Inkata Freedom Party, yeah. um, even though it no longer has a majority, also Absolutely. Uh, can contest uh, the ANC's power. So yes. that's a possible yes, future comparison. line of, of Absolutely, of, of thank analysis. you. <laughs> uh, thanks so much uh, thank for talking to us today and, uh, and, and also to my co-host Peter Oleji. Thank you. Thank you both. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Ryan Blyton, and Alicia Scheel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us a message at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.